We're in Acts chapter 12. If you have a Bible, you want to turn on your device, your phone, your iPads, whatever it is you have. We're in Acts chapter 12. I forgot my ticket. That's what Albert Einstein said to the train conductor when he asked for his ticket on the way to New York City. Einstein couldn't find his ticket, and the train conductor said, recognizing who Einstein was, oh, Professor Einstein, it's okay. I know who you are. You don't need a ticket. And Einstein, this brilliant physicist and mathematician, looked up at the conductor and said, no, no, it's not a matter of trust. It's a matter of direction. You see, I need to find my ticket because I don't know where I'm going. Do you know where you're going? Stephen Garber, in his book, The Fabric of Faithfulness, said, the most important person any child can ask himself is, who am I? The most important person any teenager can ask himself is, who am I? The most important person any single can ask themselves is, who am I? The most important person, most important question any adult can ask themselves is who am I? The most important person any senior can ask him or herself is who am I? Who are you? Do you know where you're going? Can you find your ticket? Listen, the question of identity is a very important question these days. You walk out of the grocery store to pay for your groceries and you're confronted with self-image, people begging you to look like them, people begging you to be as smart as them, people begging women to have a certain body image, begging men to be entrepreneurs like the guys on the cover of Inc. magazine. Who are you? Do you know where you're going? Do you have your ticket? Listen, it's the question that's at the bottom of almost every great work of literature. Brothers Karamazov, Moby Dick, even that great work of Western literature by Philip Day Eastman, the children's book called Where Is Your Mother? (laughs) You know the story of Where Is Your Mother, moms and dads? You know, it's a story of a little birdie who is an egg, and the mother flies off to go and get food, thinking that the egg will just be there when she gets back, except the egg hatches. The bird leaves the nest, and the whole story is the bird going to the kitten, and to the hen, and to the cow, and then to the backhoe, asking one very, very important question. Are you my mother? Why? Because the question of who am I is the most important question you will ever ask yourself. Who are you? Do you know where you're going? Do you have your ticket? In Acts chapter 12, Luke pauses the story of God's mission to the nations to show us one very small glimpse of a man named Herod who did not know where he was going, who could not find his ticket, and in the end, he is eaten by worms. Give your attention to God's word, and we're going to read from Acts chapter 12. Let's look at the life of Herod, a man who lost his ticket. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. 
And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding at the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in his cell. Peter, uh, he struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly! And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself. And put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know what was being done by the, that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. And when he had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. And when Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went out to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer, recognizing Peter's voice. In her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. And they said to her, are you out of your mind? But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it's his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning with them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when the day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries in order that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the, uh, the king's country for food. And on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat on the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of God and not a man! And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of, the Lord, word of God increased and multiplied, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Friends, this is the very word of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, would you take this chapter, though it was a long reading, I pray that you'll help us to see this very, very simple point, that you want us to know who we are, that you want us to find our ticket. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
In this chapter, King Herod shows us what happens to people who oppose God. That's why Luke includes it in the story of the early church. What happens to people who oppose God's mission? Here's a snapshot of one such example. Herod couldn't find his ticket. He was commissioned by the emperors of Rome to be over an area about as wide as if you drew a square from here over to Stillwater and then you went down to Ardmore over to Durant and back up to Tulsa. That's about the size over which these emperors had placed this man, Herod Agrippa, to rule over the area surrounding Jerusalem. And because Herod was an incredible networker, he was probably a pretty good conversationalist, and you and I probably would have liked him. I mean, Josephus writes in the early church that he actually was a very fair and generous man. He gave away more money than he had income coming in. He was incredibly moral on the outside. And here he was, set over this area of Jerusalem, to rule and to be the emperor's right hand. And somewhere along the way, Herod lost his ticket. He did not know who he, he, did not know who he was. And Herod Agrippa became Herod the Proud. Who are you? Where are you going? Do you have your ticket? Listen, the first thing you see in this passage is what happens to people who are proud. And the first thing you have to recognize about pride, if you're ever going to be somebody who is fighting to prevent pride in their life, you have to be able to see what Herod didn't see about himself. Herod didn't see three things about himself. What's the first thing he didn't see? Number one, if you're going to prevent pride in your life, the first thing you have to see in this passage is that you and I are sinners. Look at verse 23 of chapter 12. It says, beginning at verse 21, on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes and he took his seat on the throne and he delivered an oration to them. He did this because there are a group of people in his kingdom who were at odds with Herod and Herod was frustrated with them that they weren't paying the right tax back to the capital. And they needed, he needed them to pay their tax because he was the one providing food for them amidst a famine. So Herod is all in a hiffy, and he wants to remind people how great he is. So he dons his royal robes. He puts them on, it says in verse 21. He took his seat upon the throne, and he gave a speech. And the people shouted, this is the voice of God and not a mere mortal. In the early church outside of the Bible, Josephus, who is a Jewish historian, records this very act. And he says that presently his flatterers cried out, this is not in the Bible. This is a historian talking about the same events in the Bible. His flatterers cried out from one place and another. They cried out to him, though not for his good, that he was a god. And then they added, Be thou merciful to us, O Herod, for although we have hitherto reverenced you only as a man, yet shall we henceforth own you as superior to our mortal nature. And upon this, King Herod neither rebuked them nor rejected their impious flattery. In the ancient Near East, it must have been shocking for people to have read the creation story. It, 
It must have been shocking for people in the desert, in the wandering waste of the wilderness, to hear Moses tell them the story of creation. Because you know the story of creation has one refrain or one chorus, that he makes things after its own kind, the birds after their own kind, the animals after their own kind, the plants after their own kind. And then he gets to day six, and what does he say? Let us make man after our own kind. In our image. And what was so shocking about that for the ancient Near East, for Israel in the wilderness, is that the ancient Near East only believed that there was one person made in the image of God. Who was that? The rulers. And so is it any wonder why Herod accepted their praise? I mean, it was totally illogical to look at a man and to say he was a god. To say there's only one God and it's the man who dons a pretty shiny coat and says, I'm the king and becomes a puppet master of the emperor. Pride is illogical. It doesn't always make sense. But Herod believed that he was indeed a God to be worshipped. Herod forgot he was a sinner. Herod forgot who he was. Herod lost his ticket. Who are you? Do you know where you're going? Do you have your ticket? The real issue of pride, friends, is not if it exists in your heart, but where it exists and how pride is being expressed in your life. Listen, there are good kinds of pride and there are bad kinds of pride. Pride in country, proud of what you do, a sense of dignity and self-respect. That's the good kind of pride. But Martin Luther said that the gods of this world are riches, pleasure, and pride. And the good kind of pride that breeds a dignity and respect is a kind of pride we should encourage and foster. But there's a bad kind of pride that breeds vanity and arrogance. There's an old word for this kind of pride. You know what it's called? It's called vainglory. Isn't that a good word? Try that this week in a sentence with your friends. Vain glory. It's an old 18th century word. What does vain glory mean? Pride is a feeling, feeling a deep pleasure or satisfaction derived from your own accomplishments or the achievements of those with whom you are closely associated or from qualities or possessions that are widely admired. Vain glory is twisting that so that you're the one who is the source of all of your greatness. Vainglory is a misapprehension of the glory of God. It's forgetting that you are a sinner. What are the symptoms of pride in your life and, and, and in mine? Well, we know from this text in verse 23 that the first sign of pride is there's a pursuit for self-glory. Notice that he says, immediately, Luke says of Herod, immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down. Why? Because he did not give glory to God. Do you? There's nothing in your life that hasn't been given to you by God. Nothing. The family that you were born into, 
the education that you received, even if you had received a scholarship to go to college, even if you knew the people that gave you the job you had, even if you had the skills to do the job you had, all of that was given to you by a sovereign creator who loves you. Not a hair can fall from your head except by his command. He has given you everything. The first sign of pride is a radical pursuit of self-glory. And the funny thing about pride, at least in my own life, is that pride never stays contained. It always bleeds over. And I think it bleeds over, at least in, in my life, I've seen it bleed over into two ways. It bleeds over into injustice, where I begin to think that I deserve something that somebody else doesn't. Kind of a self-pompous, arrogant attitude that makes you think you deserve it. Or more commonly for me, and I'm sure for you, it breeds ingratitude. You find somebody who's proud, and I'll show you somebody who's not grateful. You show, some, you show me somebody who's humble, and I'll show you somebody who's profoundly grateful for the things that they've been given. Charles Wesley formed a group called the Oxford Holy Club in the 18th century, and these men asked themselves very honest, piercing questions when they met together. You know, the first question they, that they asked themselves in the Oxford Holy Club is, Am I creating the impression for other people that I'm actually better than I really am? That I've actually achieved more than I really have? Am I marketing myself in such a way as to hide who I really am for fear of their rejection? It's the very first question the Oxford Holy Club asked each other. Are you? Consciously or subconsciously, are you trying to create the impression that you are better than you really are? The first sign of pride is a radical pursuit of self-glory. The second one you see in the life of Herod is found in verse 3. It is the love of applause. Notice in verse 3 it says, When he saw that it pleased the Jews... He killed James, the son of Alphaeus, not James, the brother of Jesus, who wrote the book of James. James, the son of Alphaeus, he took him out. And then when he saw that this pleased the Jews, the religious people, the people he had a hard time, his constituents that he had a hard time pleasing, when he saw that they... <laughs> it says that he proceeded to arrest Peter also. We, there's a part of each of us, friends, that long to be recognized. We long to be known. We long to be recognized for the work that we do. And this, I think, is very apparent in stay-at-home moms. Listen, a lot of you stay-at-home mothers, you slave away for your family. And you raise your children, and you invest incredible amounts of energy into them. You spend a lot of time behind the scenes, and people really don't see you and you do your work at home, and you know your investment into your children is worthwhile, but you often feel like you're the only one who believes and acknowledges that. And the fact that this is painful to you is testimony for your human need for recognition and approval. Thomas Aquinas said, it seems to belong to a natural appetite that one wishes, uh, that, one, uh, wishes that one's goodness would finally become known. Moms, listen, I struggle with that too. I do. Like I wish that Trinity, um, I wish we all 
loved our church. I wish you loved coming to church on Sunday. I wish we were five times as big as we are. I wish that we had recognition in town that we don't. But there's a part of that that's a kind of pursuit of applause that I have to fight. And moms, I want you to know something. Your Savior loves you, and he's with you, and he sees everything that you do, and he sings over you that you're worth it. Herod loved the applause. In the Confessions, Augustine tells a famous story about his teenage years, and he says that one night he and his friends were hanging out, and they were bored, and so they saw a farmer, and they decided to go over to the farmer's side of the fence and to steal some pears. They didn't need to steal any pears. They just didn't have anything better to do. And Augustine said, they took the pears just for the fun of stealing it. And in his reflection on this crime, Augustine wonders what fueled his desire for sin. And in a very crucial part of the book, in the Confessions, Augustine says that he would not have done it alone. He wanted to impress his friends. And as soon as the words were spoken to him, let's go over there and do it, he confessed that he was shamed not to be shameless. And the same desire to get the approval from his friends in that farmer's yard when he was a teenager drove his relentless desire for approval and recognition as a professor later on in his life. Do you love the applause of people? Does it cause you to go in directions you never anticipated? Do you know where you are going? Who are you? Where are you going? Do you have your ticket? The second thing you learn from this text, if you're going to fight or try to prevent pride, is not only do you have to recognize yourself to be a sinner, but you have to see that you're saved by grace. Notice in this chapter, Luke is very intentionally contrasting the life of Herod with the life of the church. Notice what the church does. It says when they heard that Peter was put in prison, the church all goes and they meet at John Mark's mother's house, Mary's, and they pray for the Lord to deliver Peter and to glorify himself. They took their cue from King David, who in the midst of being threatened, in the midst of being uh, having his own plan crushed. Peter's in prison. James has been killed. It's like saying, look, they took out Charlie Spears. They've got Harlan in prison. They are driven to pray. Just like King David says, who am I, O sovereign Lord, that you would consider me? What is my family that you have brought me this far in 2 Samuel 7? Or as Ruth says, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you would notice me, a foreigner? They, they came to pray because they knew that they had been saved by grace. It wasn't their resourcefulness. It wasn't their connections at City Hall. They prayed for the Lord to glorify himself. They begged the Lord to deliver Peter. And then also notice what happens to Peter. Peter's in the prison about to be killed. You know, it's, it's a festival. It's Passover. There's not gonna, they're not going to execute anybody during the festival. So we'll just arrest the guy and let the festival pass by. And then at the end, then we'll bring him out and we'll have a grand finale. And so the night before this grand finale, the, before they're going to take Peter's life, Herod is so excited. Yes! And in his pride, I, 
I've got the perfect plan to win the constituency over. And isn't it always funny how the Lord thwarts our plans? The Lord trumps Herod because he delivers Peter. But notice the night before Peter is going to be executed, what is Peter doing? He's sleeping. If you talk to people who um, are involved with inmates who are on death row, they'll all tell you there is one singular fact about every one of them. And they do not sleep the night before they die. Here's Peter, he's sleeping. Why can he sleep? Because Peter knows that he's been saved by grace. My life is your life. Whatever you want from me, Lord, here I am. And Peter trusts his Savior so much that he's not trying to figure out how to get out of his jam. The night before his, he is headed to the gallows, he sleeps. Isn't that beautiful? Are you content like that? Do you have that kind of joy, that kind of contentment? Why not? It's because you've lost your ticket. And you're living constantly for the pursuit of self-glory or for the applause of other people. And it's confused you. And you do not know where you're going. Who are you? Where are you going? Do you have your ticket? The third thing you have to see is not only that you're a sinner, not only that you're saved by grace, the third thing you have to see is that you are made in the image of God. Listen, how do you prevent pride? I, I, I think you actually prevent pride the same way that you prevent despair. What I mean by that is that th there are some Sundays when, and if you know me, you know that Sunday afternoons are really hard for me. Because if I feel like, you know, this is a great service, the sermon went well, and, you know, the, the compliments of other people, when I was a young preacher, they just, man, they were what it took to get me over the hump until Monday or Tuesday. And I began to judge my own um, the fruit of the success of the way the Lord's using me by the way people responded to sermons. And it was incredibly crippling and debilitating because one Sunday would lead me to this incredible sense of pride and then on the next week, nobody would say anything and I would be in the pit of despair. You fight pride the same way you fight despair by recognizing that you have a fierce desire to control and to be responsible for that which you are not responsible for. You cannot control everything about your house, moms, dads. You cannot control everything about the office or about your family. And we are called to be men and women of integrity, to follow through in the Lord's command, even when it doesn't seem to make sense, and to trust him. And the only way that you can do that is by not just turning from pride, but turning to a new affection. Thomas Chalmers wrote a book called The power of an expulsive new affection and Chalmers says this that such is the grasping tendency of the human heart that it must have something to lay hold of the heart is not so constituted and the only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power 
of a new one. He tells the, boy, uh, the story of a boy who had misplaced affections, who finally got rid of his struggle overeating. And then as soon as he got rid of that struggle overeating, he transferred that struggle for manlier tastes like pleasure and women. And when that pleasure grew old, he gave way to his own wealth. And when the wealth got old, he gave way to his citizenship. And then when the citizenry got old, he gave way to power. Listen, the only way that you can actually be humble is not by trying to be humble. The only way you can have joy, this is the secret of the Christian life, is by not directly pursuing it. You have to pursue a much more expulsive power, the power of a new affection. And the new affection is this, that you have a Savior who loves you, that not only is beautiful and transcendent and glorious, but that comes to you in Jesus. And he sings over you, listen, I know how worried you are. I know that this is not the life you thought you might have when you were this age, but this is my way of reminding you that I am all you need. Sometimes people say tongue-in-cheek that the best way of getting rid of pride is to experience devastating public humiliation. (laughs) And that's probably true, and I pray that that never has to happen for you. Or to have the quality and the achievement that you're so proud of utterly destroyed. And that may be true, though I pray that that never has to happen to you or to have what you are so confident in be exposed as being utterly impotent or unimpressive. I hope that never has to happen to you. But if those things have happened to you or are happening to you, it's because the Lord loves you and he wants to deliver you from your pride and he wants to take your self-glory and to take your lust for the approval of others and he wants to give you your lost ticket. Who are you? Do you know where you're going? Do you have your ticket? Seen in the story of the gospel of God's radical pursuit for self-glory is what hands us that ticket. That from Genesis to Revelation is the story of the Lord trying to make himself known. And you know, just like kings around the world used to do you know that when whenever in iraq you know when they took down saddam hussein you know what they found they found statues of him everywhere busts of saddam hussein in the cabinet rooms full statues of him in babylon and you know what god does in this world he does the exact same thing except who are his statues you and he says i want to declare my glory to the nations and i want to speak of my power except he's not a malevolent dictator he's a loving and gracious god who cares for you more than you could ever know most of us want 15 seconds of fame but do you know what god actually gives you he gives you 15 billion years of it in him Most of us just want to be recognized and to be approved of. Do you know what he gives you in the gospel? He gives you himself. And at the cost of his only son who died for you and rose again from the dead, you are approved and cherished and loved. 
Who are you? Where are you going? Do you have your ticket? God's glory and our pursuit for self-glory come together in one place. And that place is called the cross of Jesus Christ. And you drag your baggage to it. Please do. And you leave it there. And all of your trinkets of the world. Garrison Keillor once said, they celebrate this weekend the 40th anniversary of Prairie Home Companion. It's, that's free. I'm a little nerdy. I know that. But this weekend, they celebrate the 40th year. And he says that I live my entire life trying to earn little trinkets and merit badges. And when I reflect on my life, it's funny, I'm really no better than the cleaning lady. We're all trying to get these trinkets. And Jesus says, you want the trinket that's gonna satisfy you? He gives you himself. It's not found in a principle, it's not found in power, it's found in a person, your savior, Jesus Christ, who loves you. He's not mad at you, friends. He's not mad at you. And it's okay to be vulnerable before him because he already knows you anyway. Bring yourself glory and bring your love of approval to the cross. Jesus is the one who killed pride once and for all when he faced the pride of the world and he endured the cross. He's the one that didn't consider equality a thing to be grasped but made himself nothing, took, taking the very form of a servant. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus is the one who now is at the right hand of the Father this very minute, and he's interceding for you. He says your name before the Father right now. Don't hold this against him. He's mine. Listen, there's no agent in Hollywood who could give you that kind of access. You have that kind of agent in Jesus. Who are you? Do you know where you're going? Do you have your ticket? Nothing in the world no amount of fame or pleasure or power or position could possibly earn you the kind of access you have right now by faith in Jesus Christ because he's at the Father, the creator of the universe, has his ear. And he knows your name. that good news? Jesus delivers you from all of your self-glory pursuits. He delivers you once and for all, for the, from the death that Herod received, being eaten by worms. If you do not receive the ticket from Jesus, you will go to the station of the worms. Who are you? Do you know where you're going? Do you have your ticket? It's found in Jesus Christ, who hands you his ticket this very moment. Do you have the faith to receive it? Repent and look to him who loves you more than you could ever fathom. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you will help us amidst our confusion of the directions of our life, amidst our radical pursuit for self-identity, would you remind us that we are in you by faith, that you have called out to sinners like we are, that you have saved us by your grace, that you have made us and formed us into the image, into your very image, and sometimes slowly, but yet steadily and progressively, you are making us more and more like you. Father, would you help us to trust you? Would you help us 
to take your ticket. Would you help us to know who we are? Thank you for being our agent. Thank you for showing us the direction of our life. Thank you that you help us answer the question, who am I? In Jesus' name, amen.